Okay, I'm delighted to be joined here today for Series 2, Episode 3 of the Downtown and Business Podcast, A Frank Conversation with Richard Angel. Uh, Richard is a fascinating personality, somebody that I've uh, got to know over the last four or five years um, from his time at uh, a Labour Pressure Group called Progress, which he'll tell us a little bit more about in a moment, I'm sure. Uh, but before we get into uh, the bones of the conversation today, Richard, just give us a bit more about your background, tell people uh, where you've come from and how you've ended up in the position that you're in now, which of course is Head of Policy and Public Affairs at the fantastic Terence Higgins Trust. Where, where to start? I suppose um, for me it's been kind of a political and personal journey that started with my parents divorcing when I was three and being brought up in a single parent family under a Tory government that was pretty cruel to uh, uh, families in that situation and then realising as I grew up that I was gay and wanted to come out and go through that process and saw the world was changing you know when uh, uh, you know when I was growing up the Labour government was starting to change things on LGBT rights and I got involved in a few things in my community mainly doing fundraising and I realised we were fundraising for things that the government should be paying for. And it was much better to basically go upstream and get the demand the government did it rather than kind of compensate for where government fails. And broadly, that got me political. I've always had this sense that I'd rather invent the vaccine than put plasters on everything. That's a bit too true, I think, for where we are uh, now. But that's been my kind of political journey and what has driven me in public uh you know, uh, service in various forms that I have done. That led me to uh, join the Labour Party when I went to university, become president of my student union, run lots of campaigns. And I was uh, I was decried by the mail for being a Marxist uh, student leader, which is ironic considering all of the political positions I have held um, and my consistently anti-Marxist um, approach to things. The BNP ran a campaign against me, various uh, ways in which um, uh, you know, I have upset the right-wing establishment in this country, um, but never, never quite been embraced by the left. Um, but then went on, I left uh, student politics um, to go and work for the all-party group on combating anti-Semitism. Uh, we did some really remarkable stuff there that has become all too relevant in the last few years because of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership um, of the Labour Party and how Jewish people felt about uh, the kind of positions he took and those around him uh, behaved. And then uh, I worked for a trade union community, uh, the, the, mainly the steel union. There's a, no, a number of uh, communities with high uh, density industries in their areas. So we saved the steelworks in uh, 2010 up in uh, Redcar, which is now sadly closed. Um, I, I work, worked for Progress, the Labour pressure group, for a number of years that we uh, you just mentioned. Uh, I went and worked for the Australian Labour Party when I left there, and I've come back and now the head of public policy at uh, the Terence Higgins Trust, which is something I'm really enjoying. So really interesting and quite diverse career uh, as well, Richard, uh, all underpinned by politics. Uh, and you said that, you know, your politics in a sense was driven from your experiences, as most people's, yeah. let's face it. Um, but there's been a fabulous drama uh, on the television over the past couple of weeks called It's a Sin. And uh, I watched this drama partly through ignorance I have to say partly through a sort of vague memory of what was going on uh, in the early 80s with HIV AIDS uh, and the gay community um, but mostly uh, in the end I think with with some anger uh, about how we treated people in such recent times uh, you know you, you could watch that program if you didn't know what year some of those incidents were taking place, you will put it back into the 19th century, never mind into the late 20th century. Um, so for somebody from the uh, gay community, it must be particularly poignant uh, for you. In, in very many ways. So if people haven't seen it, Russell T Davis, who's famous for reinventing Doctor Who uh, and many other uh, kind of great TV shows. He did a, a stint on Coronation Street and others, um, has written this fabulous drama, five-part series for Channel 4 about the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and the, particularly the LGBT experience uh, uh, around that. And 
Um, it is remarkable for a variety of reasons, but also it has hit a cultural moment and it has really started a conversation in the country about HIV AIDS and how it has changed um, in, the, in the kind of 40 years that has passed since. And uh, uh, in, in that 40 years since Terry Higgins, who our organisation is obviously named after, was one of the first people in the country to die of HIV AIDS. So uh, it, it's very important for that reason. It's really struck a chord with people. But so for somebody my age, the, the crucial moment for for me was when Russell T Davies did Queer as Folk, which was a similar drama based in Manchester about the gay experience. And I was 13 at the time. It was the only time in the week I'd volunteer to go to bed early. Uh, teenagers obviously don't like doing that generally. I would turn the color off my TV, put the subtitles on, turn the sound off. I'd even put my dressing gown down at the bottom of the door so nobody could see the flashing lights and watch this window that Russell T Davies had, had, had created to look at the world I wanted to go and live in, to be openly gay, to share with people those experiences, to kiss a man in the street and hold their hands and all that kind of stuff. So watching it partly transported me back to that experience. And I was, felt like I was watching watching myself uh, watch that earlier Russell T Davies experience, but also it has started a conversation about where HIV AIDS is and it's just moved on so remarkably. So the people you watch, in the show, when they get HIV, it very quickly develops to AIDS and very many of them die and die too young in their most beautiful years of their life. Today, if you can uh, be diagnosed within four years of getting a HIV diagnosis, it has no impact on your life expectancy. The treatment's so effective, you can have so little HIV in your system, you don't pass it on to a sexual partner, or if you become pregnant, you wouldn't pass it on to your fetus child um, uh, in that process. And that is absolutely remarkable. The other thing was once that fear of HIV that you see in It's a Sin uh, was out there, there was nothing people could do to protect against it other than the use of condoms. We now have something called PrEP, which is a drug that is taken by people who test HIV negative. That means you have a resistance in your system. So if you were to come into contact with HIV, it would fight the virus early and not able to establish in your system. So those two things that we call U equals U, un undetectable means untransmittable, and PrEP, this wonder drug, means that within, hopefully, this decade, we won't have any new cases of HIV in the UK. It's an incredible series of progressing um, measures that have been able to come to the fore to, to tackle what was, uh, as you say, Richard, a killer disease. But can I just stick with those early 80s for a moment? Because, as I say, if you watch it that back now, uh, and you weren't around at the time, um, th then it would probably um, strike you as being as horrific as I'm sure it was for the people living through that period. Um, and so you've mentioned the, the scientific and the pharmaceutical advances that have been made. But in terms of some of the prejudices that were around then, I have to say it's better now, um, but those prejudices still incredibly exist, don't they? Well, you see in the show people being fired for being gay, excluded from services, uh, you know, unable to do all kinds of things because of HIV. And some of that very um, top level prejudice has moved on, thankfully, but the stigma really persists. We at Terence Higgins Trust did a poll not long ago that found that half of all people wouldn't kiss somebody living with HIV and a third wouldn't even consider going on a date with somebody. So the stigma is very, very real. We had a, um, a oral health uh, dental association just October, November last year, uh, put out the lie that you can get HIV by sharing a toothbrush is not true, but they did that in 2020 while another pandemic was happening, incredibly irresponsible. And our chief executive did a really good job of making sure they reflected the science going forward. But we still have HIV stigma hardwired into many of our systems. For example, if you go to give blood today and you're a man who has sex with men, there are limits on you because of what happened with HIV in the 80s, but it hasn't caught up with the reality. So in, in July, the government have committed to changing it so that um, you're only excluded if you've had a, a new sexual partner in the last three months of which you've done anal sex with them. Uh, but those living with people living with HIV are no longer excluded if their partner is on treatment and what we call undetectable. But there's still a rule that if you're a woman that has sex with men who have sex with men, you're banned for life for giving blood. And that will go in July this year. So that's just one way in which the stigma persists, even though the science has changed. I'm told there's similar issues with 
if you want to be a sperm donor or you want to be uh, organize a surrogate relationship with a friend, somebody I know who's a gay man living with HIV wants to ha have a surrogate child with a, a lesbian couple that they know but are unable to provide their sperm because of their HIV status, despite the fact their treatment means there's not enough HIV in their sperm to be able to pass that on to their partner, but uh, or, or in that uh, that process of, of trying to uh, inseminate uh, a, a, an unfertilized egg. So, you know, there is stigma that persists in lots of places, and we're moving it all the time, but not quick enough. Yeah, without question, we still a long way to go, I'd suggest. But uh, can I just say one thing on, on that, just so it might be helpful? It's HIV testing week this week, so we're encouraging people to get a test. And while we're recording this, uh, we've got people across the country taking tests. We had 8,200 people claim a free HIV home test on day one of HIV testing week, which is three times our previous um, uh, uh, record, which is great. But a number of employers across the country are giving links out to their staff uh, and do this with us uh, sporadically through the year, where they encourage their staff to get a HIV test. They give them an anonymous link so we can send them the test and then we invoice the company at the end to say, you know, 80 of your staff, we're not gonna tell you who, but did a HIV test and, you know, I've got a route to knowing their status and potentially being on treatment if necessary. So, you know, you've got great employers and one of the reasons why people join the Downtown in Business Network is because they're conscious of their environment, both physically, geographically and socially. And so people listening are interested in, you know, promoting HIV testing amongst their employees and want to do their bit to fight stigma um, uh, going forward, then please do contact Terence Higgins Trust. We'd be keen to talk to them about whether their staff want to have uh, free HIV tests made available to them. Fantastic. So as you've outlined, Richard, lots of progress, uh, lots to be positive about, but equally, uh, you know, within society itself, uh, progress has been made as well. And I know you're a big, big admirer for many reasons uh, of Tony Blair and the new Labour government. Uh, but again, there was a, a genuine move to a more liberal approach uh, to the uh, gay community during that particular government's time. Um, I think John Major would probably say that there was some move within his term of office as well. Certainly in stark contrast to, to the Thatcher years, yeah? Um, which uh, again, I was reminded of this through it's a sin banned the uh, the teachings as they said it the promotion uh, of homosexuality it's just incredible mind-blowing to think of some of the stuff that was going on as recently as the 80s um but but you know talk us through um first of all how difficult challenging it is growing up uh, as a gay man in the uk um and then how you saw things perhaps improve as you know from that top level of government uh, there began some change in attitudes and indeed in legislation as well i think the thing to say is uh, one the lgbt and the hiv experience is often intertwined for people so when i came out to my dad the first thing he asked me was when i was going to get aids um i jokingly said oh, i've got it booked in for the 22nd do you want to come with me and he went, what do you mean? I said, what a stupid question for such a clever person. And uh, so you know, that, that really does persist um, there. And you know, when people in my family who were very wanting to be very okay with me being out as gay would ask persistently if I was being good, meaning are you using a condom and are you not getting that awful AIDS uh, going forward? It's amazing how uh, toxic that can make some of your relationships. And I know lots of gay men will live with quite difficult sexual relationships with people because of that fear of HIV and what that might have meant and on the previous death sentence it was and not knowing if you're not affected by how much the science has changed going forward. You know, when I was becoming aware of being gay, it was amazing to see that progress. Um, I think the truth is neither side of politics particularly covered itself in glory. So uh, when Major tried to equalize the age of consent to 16, uh, not only did his own party pull out, pull back against him, but good people like David Blunkett wouldn't vote for it. So it went from 21 to 18 in 1993, 94 time, uh, when Blair, I think was shadow home secretary at the time supporting it, um, but it didn't go all the way to 16 and have real equality. That had to wait for Blair's Labour government. Uh, then we had the persistent uh, campaigns against by the conservative elements of the House of Lords. So section 28 that you talked about that pro 
prohibited the promotion of homosexuality as an equal alternative lifestyle um, wasn't repealed till 2003 on Blair's third attempt because the House of Lords was so belligerent in stopping it. But once that had changed, you saw adoption rules change. You saw gender recognition allow people to change their birth certificates. You saw civil partnerships come about. Um, and, uh, and of course, that then led to when David Cameron brought in equal marriage, Labour MPs voted for that to happen. But so lots of people have tried. Lots of people have not been as good as they could have been. But we have seen real change. And the direction of travel is a really positive one. On HIV in particular, you know, It's a Sin captures that era of despair that was there. We now live in an era of hope because of the development in, in treatment and what I said, this kind of being undetectable means you can't pass it on uh, and the existence of PrEP. We could end new cases of, H of HIV by 2030. And when I joined Terence Higgins Trust in September, landed on my desk was a, a project nearly finished called the HIV Commission. And it sets out the route map for government uh, to get to that 2030 goal that Matt Hancock signed up to in 2019. Um, it's got some really big stuff in it, mainly about how we change testing. So it's in routine across the system, how we make sure that people can get prep wherever in the country, not just in sexual health services, but in your GP or elsewhere. And it really talked about fighting stigma. And one of the things that we found is the group you're most likely to experience stigma from if you're living with HIV is a healthcare professional. Now that's partly because they're the person you're most likely to declare your status to. But we had an example in an event in early 2019 where you could meet in person, was a thing once I remember, um, is, is a guy living with HIV told the chair of our commission, Damien Gabeel, that just weeks before he'd been in a hospital in Birmingham and two nurses spoke over him as a patient and talked about their need to double glove if they were giving him treatment, which is of course not the science, it is just stigma but it persists today. So there's still lots to do. The government have committed to an action plan by 2030, to annual reporting to parliament so we can see the progress against the, the figures uh, that are taking place and to roll out this testing um, in, in more places. Uh, we'll see what that action plan comes up with. We'll be pushing, prodding and cajoling, as you know I do, Frank, uh, the government to, uh, to do the right thing at, at those points. But there's a real moment of hope um, there. Um, and again, to talk to your members, you know, we're doing events for corporates all over the country about it's a sin, how HIV has changed, conversations like this that have been really informative and have been raising money for the important services we do at the THT, whether it's campaigning for change or funding the kind of services for those living with HIV. You know, we're going through a recession right now. People living with HIV are the most likely to lose their jobs through that. They have to then inquire through the benefit system. There's all kinds of difficulties that still persist uh, for people in those moments. Jonathan Ashworth raised in the, the Shadow Health Secretary raised in the House of Commons today, people living with HIV should be getting the, the vaccine in phase six, but you could only get it in phase six if you've told your GP that you're living with HIV. And many people will not have done, particularly if you live in a more rural community and the GP is the center of your network and everyone knows who they are, that is a big deal to disclose your status, but that might mean you, you miss out on getting the virus. So the important work that we do to advocate for people living with HIV still, sadly, persists and goes on. And as with all infections, we have to be conscious of the global environment now, Richard, don't we? As we've seen with coronavirus, you know, it's very topical at the moment, how you actually protect your country from other strains of coronavirus, COVID coming into the country and so on. Um, and again, from memory, you'll update us on this situation, I'm sure. Um, you know, HIV um, was something that felt like it was being imported from the States, if you remember. That was the media's take on it. So big explosion of infections in the United States. And then, of course, we recognise and understand now it's a global issue. Uh, across the world, has the progress that you've outlined in the UK been matched? Not everywhere, sadly. I mean, it is a, uh, it's a pandemic that has really uh, ravaged Africa and made a big difference to communities of colour across the world, but in particular on the continent of Africa. There's been big step forwards that Blair Brown government did a lot to make sure that uh, the, uh, through the Africa Commission and other initiatives around the 
the G, what G was it that we all went out to Edinburgh for? Uh, the G7, I think it was, uh, you know, got uh, drug companies to make sure that they were affordable uh, to, to all countries. And there has been some progress in that. I heard yesterday that 1.8 billion has been cut from the fight against HIV uh, and AIDS in just the last year. Um, so that's a really worrying uh, kind of situation that the, some of the global funding um, is not there. There was a lot done under George W. Bush, uh, to be fair to him, um, at funding uh, real effort on the pandemic um, through their the USAID uh, work. And we, of course, through DFID have done lots uh, to help this, um, but progress has not been quick enough. Uh, UNAIDS, which is the global agency looking at this, is trying to get every country to meet three main goals. They want to find 90% of those living with HIV to be diagnosed, 90% of those to be on effective treatment, and 90% of those to have an undetectable viral load. Uh, and if we can make that progress around the world, that will do a huge amount to stop the virus being transmitted um, and new people getting it, but also help those living with HIV lead full and healthy lives. Britain is ahead on that. So uh, we, we are at 94, 98, 98, I believe. So we, we know 94% of people living in the UK are diagnosed, 98% of those on treatment, and 97, 98% of those are undetectable. So really remarkable case here. London's doing slightly better uh, than even that, but very few countries met that by the deadline of 2020 that's obviously now just passed. And because of COVID, they will struggle to continue to do that. But there is a real effort to work globally um, as well on the, the HIV AIDS uh, pandemic and make sure when we're ending one, uh, pandemic we can actually end two and we can do both of them often together get tested uh, ensure people diagnose or on treatment and stop it tra being transmitted final question for this segment of the interview we go before we we go to a, a short break richard and then when we come back we'll get into uh, more general politics um but in terms of the wider lgbt uh, agenda uh, what are the sort of issues that over the next decade you'd like to see progress made? Some of them are international. So some of the companies that are members of downtown in business will have offices in other parts of the world. If I was redeployed to Singapore or China, I'd be very worried about being open about living with uh, living as an LGBT person, living with a partner that's the same sex. Um, and that would be very impactful for me. So companies need to think those things through. And I know many of them are and trying to make that work. But we still haven't made some of the progress globally we'd like to see. Uh, in my own time, I'm a trustee of something called Kaleidoscope, which works as uh, and runs the equality network across the Commonwealth, advocating on LGBT issues to, uh, to um, nations in the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth Secretariat on LGBT issues. And sometimes people uh, that are LGBT uh, living in country in parts of the Commonwealth can most have those conversations outside the country with their own governments. You can't have those um, internally. So that's important work internationally. There's also huge progress being made with the trans community here, a community that are consistently not treated with dignity, whether it's by our press, some of our politicians or our public services. Uh, there's been a, a really regrettable court case that went through recently that stopped uh, teenagers having access to puberty blockers if they feel they're living in the wrong body and want to have kind of by that time genetically to uh, to go forward that's been uh, that's been stopped and stonewall are fighting that in the courts um, at the moment but more generally there's been a quite pernicious debate um, about sex versus gender and my general view on these things is live and let live like the people who want to use uh, a different toilet when they're presenting in a particular gender are rarely doing that to uh, to push the rules but some people are really trying to prescribe some pretty awful motives on people. Most trans people are just trying to live, literally, you know, one of the groups most likely to be assaulted uh, and hurt, let alone killed uh, by a hate crime. So, uh, you know, there aren't people dressing up in other people's clothing to use toilets. There's people just trying to go about their, their lives. So uh, there's big issues uh, still, uh, and they continue to get worked on. We're in LGBT History Month uh, now, and it's a great time to look back on the LGBT people who save this country literally with the likes of Alan Turing who you know without him we would not have won the second world war but he was gay after the war he was uh, burgled um, and in the process of them uh, um, trying to you know when he didn't want to pursue um, through the police system and the court system the burglary they started asking questions why and thought that somehow he was 
a spy and found out he was gay. He was prosecuted for it. He was uh, given the option of chemical castration uh, in 1951, and he very soon afterwards committed suicide. So you know, this country is better for the LGBT people who have designed great things and built our culture, written our plays, made this country better. And that comes in all of its forms. Russell T. Davis is a queer writer. You know, all the actors pretty much in It's a Sin are either LGBT, there's people who are genderqueer in there and trans, um, and many of them are living with HIV as well. So there's that really strong representation for the LGBT community. We should be thankful of what LGBT people have done to build the rich nation that we have here today. And we should help people live more free and equal lives, not just at home, but abroad. Lots achieved, lots still to do. Um, when we come to, uh, as I say, a short break, we'll be talking Boris, Brexit, Keir Starmer, and the Labour Party. Uh, stick with us, we'll be back in a moment. Okay, welcome back uh, to a frank conversation with, in the downtown den, Richard Angel. Richard is the Head of Policy and Public Affairs at the Terence Higgins Trust. Uh, and before the break, of course, we were talking about that role and the many issues affecting the LGBT community, uh, most particularly around HIV. But of course, uh, Richard's got a keen interest in politics. Uh, and Richard, I just wanted to get your take on where the government is at this moment in time. I think we would all concede that uh, whatever your political persuasion, uh, they appear to be getting the vaccination all outright. Uh, and so that has given everybody a little bit of hope in the current situation, which let's face it's been pretty dire up to this point. Um, but we've also left the European Union, got a Brexit deal of sorts, uh, and prior to the vaccination rollout, uh, I don't think that, again, whatever your political colours, you would suggest that the government had covered themselves in glory. Where do you see Boris Johnson and the current administration in terms of its performance overall? Um, and then I'll get you to talk through some of the implications you see from the Brexit deal that was done. Well, I think it's obviously important to say that I'm not speaking with my kind of charity hat on here. This was, uh, uh, this is kind of, me in my own personal right, uh, thinking these things through. But as schools are closed, I think it probably a uh, an end of term report for this government would be uh, pretty mixed, I think, across the board. So I, I think Brexit, I'd give them an F on. Uh, not only uh, do I disagree with Brexit, but I think we have come out with a pretty poor Brexit um, deal going forward. Um, it, they keep calling it bespoke, but I think that's because it's um, it, it's, it's a very lowest common denominator uh, deal going forward. I'm one of those people trapped because while I don't support Brexit and I didn't think leaving the EU was a good or thing or the right thing for the country, I've always thought it was in the interests of people who, particularly working class people in the country who voted for it to vote for Brexit and they have been vindicated in the process. You know, much of our political conversation has moved to though traditional red wall type seats, talking about the communities that have been left behind. I think Brexit is a false promise to those communities, but they are communities that do need redress in a number of ways. Uh, the government should be doing it. A future Labour government should have a plan for them. The new Labour years focused on rebuilding their public services, not their geography. So we focus much more on having better schools and hospitals and having good high streets. But uh, of course, those things are intimately linked. Now, one government can't do everything, but if, if your place doesn't generate an income for your community, you don't want to derive your income from spending on public service and area. You've got to derive it from economic activity. And I think in too many places outside the kind of core 20 top cities in the country, we didn't do enough to give purpose to those places while we were rebuilding their public services to do that. And broadly since austerity has decimated much of that and has un 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 unintended consequences. You, know, you take out a court on a high street, you don't just take out the kind of proceedings in that public service of the court, but all the shops that provide sandwiches for people in the area, the post office that stays open around it. You, you know, often some of these public services are the linchpin to a local private economy as much as a public economy. And you know, already struggling uh, you know, I used to work for the MP for Bassett Law, you know, an area where already 
having challenges as a small rural community trying to keep high streets opening, losing, you know, a, a, a court closing or, or some of those key, a, a police station closing, whatever, had knock-on effects um, in the area. And I think that is poor. And there was some hope that that might get some redress at the latter part of this decade. And I think the spending we've had to have on COVID might mean that the spending we might need going forward won't actually ever come uh, down the track. So I think austerity has been pretty damning. I'm very caught, I suppose, on the COVID dealings. They, you know, if I were in government now, not that I ever planned to be, but you know, you just try and be reasonable about these things. Every decision you make is like stick, sitting on the top of a fence. Either side you fall down, there's barbed wire. You know, if you stay on the fence, you're going to get hurt as well. Like it's just, there is not a contradiction between our public health and our economy. They are interlinked. But it does feel at the moment there is a, there is a seesaw that you can start moving too far one way without there being catastrophic consequences on the other. I think broadly they've called it right that public health should dictate uh, the situation uh, going forward. I think they have done, I, th I think, um, they do when they do the right thing they do it at the last possible moment and normally because they've been they've eliminated other possibilities they would have had in the process there was an amazing piece by Raphael Burr in the Guardian at the end of 2020 that did talk about the kind of essay crisis prime minister and just it going right to the edge there's not there's just been on a number of issues there's just not been the chance to have options you've just ended up being forced down one uh, particular uh, track and it's disappointing I think to see some of the backbench pressure on the government to try and open up earlier and all of that stuff has just got us back into continual lockdown so um, but there are some really good things um, that are happening the Oak National Academy that the Department for Education has opened up has been a really good innovation um, and got really good teaching to the poorest kids in the country in some of the harshest times and they've been leading some of the advocacy on making education zero rated with uh, broadband providers and mobile providers and stuff. So there's, there's always some good things going on. There are, you know, we are a great country and even, even governments I wouldn't vote for do do good things um, occasionally. Um, but Brexit, I think, you know, means I, I probably would never be a supporter of this government. Uh, the handle in a pandemic is a mixed one. There's times they've done the right thing, but there's obviously a fear if they undo the extra money they put into universal credit, for example, that just some of the, the fabric of society feels more frayed at the moment and will, there'll be yet greater pressure on those who came from families like mine, the single parent family, one income, uh, and just struggling sometimes to, to make, enough, um, make enough money. You know, they shouldn't have to be shamed by Marcus Rashford to do the right thing. And, and when they've been shamed by him once, it seems disappointing they have to be shamed by him time and time again. So we are where we are. Boris, then, um, you know, again, whether you love them or loathe them, certainly can't be ignored, never has been able to be ignored. No. Yeah, a one-nation Tory who just happens to be a Brexiteer. He has an ability to be a relaxed around liberal society and the most regressive parts of... <laughs> Um, of of the kind of Brexiteer fringe equally, which I, I, I don't understand um, that contradiction personally. I think the truth is um, he is the kind of Boris that Dead Ringers takes the mick out of. There's a kind of good Boris and bad Boris constantly in flux, quite frankly. And, you know, there's times on, on, on some issues where he does undoubtedly do the right things for the right reasons. Sometimes he does the right things because he's been forced into doing it. And sometimes I think the agenda is just... Uh, is wrong for the country um, and not ambitious in the way uh, that it should be for what people can achieve um, and what our country can do. And I don't think they've got a way of replacing the kind of value-added power we had of being in the EU, the way that we could affect the Paris Accords and climate change discussions and the way that GDPR has changed data, the world's handling of data and made us all more data secure currently the current government doesn't have a way of replacing that kind of soft power that Britain had over things that national governments don't have in their purview but do want to have a say on if they're going to deal with tax exiles and the internet or you know and hate being spread there or, or the global challenges we've got with climate so um, it's, it's unclear which one Boris is and the truth is when you're in a we're not really talking about my job in this section but when you do try and do public affairs with the government 
you've got to try and work out how you talk to their better angels all the time and see if you can appeal to the one that's going to get your agenda done and occasionally we're able to on the area of HIV advocacy as, as, as I've said in the previous section sometimes you just don't because and sometimes you keep clear because an issue like HIV you don't want to be in the culture war that is currently talking we talked about the trans experience for some reason there is a, a tendency to rebring that up because they want to have a culture war on it and I, I can't really see that working and you look to Biden in the US he didn't try and win a culture war from the other end he ended it take this man out stop having the culture war let's get on with doing things that will make a difference not just saying things that make you feel better but doing things that will make the world better and he's done some remarkable stuff on that by not engaging the culture war but just ending it okay Richard I want to look at the opposite side of the chamber now the Labour Party which obviously you've got uh, an emotional attachment to you know you've been in the party <laughs> For my sins. Yeah, progress pressure group. Listen, could be worse, you could be like me, have that same emotional attachment and be an Evertonian, so you haven't. <laughs> um, but, you know, Labour Party, um, you and I both on the same side, I think in terms of the assessment we would make of the Jeremy Corbyn years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure about you, actually, but certainly I wasn't a uh, massive fan of Ed Miliband either. Uh, and if anything, think that the, the rot um, started to set in with, with Miliband's. Uh, We're one mind on this, Frank. So, so it, it's been a really difficult decade since uh, Gordon Brown's defeat in the 2010 election. Uh, and I think we were all... Um, given a boost um, when Keir Starmer was elected. And when I say all, by the way, I'm talking about Conservative Party activists as well who said to me, you know, one of the big dangers uh, within any government is that if you've got weak opposition or an opposition that you don't have to take seriously, it makes you a lazy government. Uh, and I think we saw bits and pieces of that last time out and, you know, Famously, Theresa May underestimated the electorate, didn't she, when she called that snap mm. in 17, I think it was. Where are you now in terms of the Labour Party uh, performance? You know, you've given a, a sort of uh, end-of-term assessment of the government. Let's let's have your end-of-term assessment uh, on Keir Starmer and his Labour team. I think we're we're still waiting to mark uh, Keir's papers uh, if we're doing that kind of assessment. I mean, let's just start with where we are politically. So one of the things that I find most frustrating about Labour politics is that for various reasons, and this started with Ed Miliband, is that there is not a public consciousness that we are 10, 11 years into a Conservative government because they talk about it. Ed Miliband was obsessed about the Lib Dem element of the coalition, not the Tory end of it, which we always thought uh, in progress was an indulgence. You can win 15 seats off them, but who cares? You've got to win them off the Conservatives if you want to be in government. So Labour spent those first five years talking about, talking about the Liberal Conservative coalition that was happening and broadly is remembered by people as a coalition, not a Conservative government. You then had that brief period of David Cameron, which ended in utter failure of the Brexit result on, on his own terms. Then there was the Theresa May government, which ended in an election where, in Labour Party terms, Labour was so wonderful it won and was so generous that it let Theresa May stay in office. Um, and then people talk about now living under a kind of vote leave government. So what's interesting, and one of the reasons why we were such a disunited kingdom, is that in Scotland and Wales, I think there's a very strong sense they've had 11 years of a Tory government outside of those countries, but interfering with their domestic politics because of devolution. But it, in England, politics hasn't been, a, you know, I don't detect on the streets fatigue that there's been a Tory government for 11 years, which I am surprised by and my friends in Scotland and Wales tell me is different. So I think that is a failing on the Labour Party through all that period, I'm sure myself and others um, included in that. So I think Keir starts with that as a challenge. It inherits the Labour Party from Jeremy Corbyn, who I found egregious as a leader. I was ashamed to vote Labour. I did it uh, reluctantly. I genuinely thought about not doing it. Um, one of my best friends is my Labour MP, which made it easier. And he had been very strong in making clear that 
Jeremy Corbyn's vision for the country wasn't the one that he reflected. He took an active role in fighting the anti-Semitism that had taken hold of the party while Jeremy Corbyn was leader and did so little um, to, to deal with and, and potentially uh, and often, I think, sponsored um, through the, the, the party. So he was somebody I could vote for, but I genuinely feel I let down Jewish friends of mine by voting Labour in 2017 and 19, really, but persisted to do it regardless because, you know, you talk about your Everton, it feels, you know, it's my team in, in, in the same uh, way. You know, Keir has come a long way in a short period of time and just him not being Jeremy Corbyn is a really big thing, but in the same way that Obama got a Nobel Prize for not being George Bush, it didn't actually mean anything. And of course, it, it wasn't, it didn't mean he was going to be good in his own right or have the success uh, that we needed. And I think, I fear Keir has started on the wrong foot in that he has, uh, having got such a commanding majority and really united the Labour Party behind a post-Corbyn leader that is not in the ilk of Corbyn, which many of us would have thought just weeks before that election started would have been the most likely outcome. He's too cautious about some of that stuff and he should have broken from the past in more decisive ways. Uh, he's chosen a shadow cabinet that was amenable to um, John McDonnell and the likes uh, rather than the best team. And I think that's a mistake of his. I think he was wrong to put Ed Miliband um, in the front bench because for a variety of reasons, the public know him and have decided they don't want him in charge of stuff. And so I think we should move on. I think it's a bit unfair to British business that he's got the business brief because had he had a pro-business position when he was leader of the opposition, he might have been the prime minister. He might not be Brexiting um, and, and having gone through that process. So I think I find that uh, ironic. Um, but also he's a bigger personality than Keir Starmer. He's a more fully formed um, personality in British politics. And because of having been leader of the opposition and covered every policy area and done his what some say is interesting podcast um you know he is well versed with some of the people who've been thinking on all these issues across the board so i personally think that will hold him back um going forward um and he needs to focus very firmly on the electorate he has a strategy at the moment that is or he has a slogan at the moment that's called a new leadership and while i support him and think he is doing great things I don't think he's being new enough and hasn't had a big enough break with the Corbyn uh, ideas as well as the individuals. Um, and too often the public see him abstaining, not showing leadership. So, you know, he set out a slogan on his own terms and he needs to live up to being a new form of leadership and, uh, and take that forward. And there's loads of opportunities to do it because the Labour Party's policies were rejected so overwhelmingly at the last election. We had uh, in our local party here, various speeches by people lords Jeremy Corbyn that it was a combination of the media uh, various surrogates for blaming the Jews uh, as people did um, and the the move in position for Brexit but I you know reminded them that not only did our Brexit position change from 2017 to 2019 our public spending went from 50 billion over the parliament to 85 billion and then we made the un, uh, uncosted commitment to end the Waspy women uh, dispute. We alienated Hindus and Sikhs with our comments on Kashmir, which had a real impact in East London, where I am, in places like Dewsbury, where we lost, um, and other places where uh, you know, community relations are important and the ethnic minority vote is an important part of Labour's um, coalition. And we had not only the nationalisation, some of which I thought were sensible, like uh, bringing Royal Mail back in house, which I would personally support, but when they were trying to nationalise BT and people's mobile broadband and, and whatever, it just it was a thing of ridicule uh, by the end. So you know, Corbyn's policies at the end of the day, they alienated everyone. Even in the region where Labour did best in London, we lost 5% of our vote. Massive. You know, Labour lost absolutely everywhere. Almost no MPs uh, in Scotland. Um, you know, our poorest result in Wales uh, for many generations. Um, and just and just 200 MPs in Westminster. It was a pretty appalling rejection. But the current leadership of the Labour Party suggests that Corbynism was a disappointment because it ended in defeat. It wasn't. It was wrong. It was an anathema to Labour history. You know, the party of uh, Clem Attlee, who you know helped this country win the war uh, and secure the peace through NATO, 
and quite frankly, having uh, you know nuclear weapons, not something I want in the world, but if Iran have got them, I definitely want us uh, to, to have them. Uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't fit in that tradition with, with, with Attlee or any Labour leader that has followed him. And he led us to the most appalling defeat, uh, massive alienation. And if Keir Starmer wants to win, he's got to overcome a 14 point swing to win the next election. Now, I personally think it's possible, partly because of the performance of this government. But as Ed Miliband learnt when he was leader, the Tories never drop the keys. You have to be prepared to wrestle it out of their hands. And that means having the best policies, the right organisation, real ambition for the country and really loving the country for what it is. You know, one of the things that Biden has done to the Democrats, uh, I hope this is long term, not just short term, is he, he kind of got off the tarnishes. It looked like they only lied to Americans who lived on the coast. You know, there's a bit of the Democratic Party that like it sneered at Americans that didn't, uh, that, that lived in those red states. And if you don't like the country you're seeking to govern, you're never going to be asked to run it. And I think that Labour nearly fell into a point of not liking the people who voted for Brexit. And like I said at the beginning of this, I've always thought it was in their interest to do it and they deserve the respect of knowing what they did and what the implications of it were, even those who regret that they took that choice. And that's a really important healing moment that Labour's got to go through. Keir seems to be the most committed to that and has worked with Rachel Reeves to, to bring Labour um, leaps and bounds on that, but there's still much more to do um, if you're prepared to go and wrestle it out of their hands. There is a huge mountain, as you've just outlined, in terms of what Labour need to do to win, just in terms of the, the mathematics around it, yeah? But you mentioned culture wars, and, you know, I always think, I would, I would, when those culture wars are happening, you know, when those rows blow up, I often think, I wish I was right-wing, it's easier to win a debate on culture wars when you're coming at it from the right. Uh, and in those red ball seats, um, I do wonder whether we've really got the message. I know we say we've listened, uh, we say we've listened over Brexit, for example, and yet still some of our parliamentary colleagues voted to uh, not support the government's Brexit team. Um, haven't told everybody that the worst possible outcome was no deal. And the inevitability of voting that particular deal down, good, bad or indifferent, was that we'd end up with the worst possible scenario. And yet they did it anyway. I, you know, you don't have to be a rocket science to understand and appreciate um, how ridiculous that situation was, actually. Um, but worse than that, in my opinion, and I think I shared this comment with you last time we spoke, Richard, when uh, Boris Johnson announced the latest school closure programme, uh, because of the pandemic. Um, I follow uh, a number of Labour MPs on social media and they came out and said, we feel really sorry for the teachers and the head teachers. Now, I have some sympathy for the teachers and the head teachers, but I tell you what, as a parent, I feel more sorry for my kids and for me. Uh, and that might sound selfish, but I would say to any Labour MP that they can knock on any of those red wall constituents' doors and ask them where their main concern and priority lies at the moment. And it ain't the teachers' unions. It's the kids and it's them as parents. And I just think unless and until the Labour Party takes those relatively simple messages, we're going to struggle to overcome that huge mountain that you've outlined. That's clearly true. You know, families should come first in politics. It's a really important, uh, you know, unit, whatever form those families uh, come in. And, you know, I see my sister who's just come back from Matt Leave, who's having to teach her kids at school and got a one-year-old about that she can't get into a nursery. So, you know, the challenges are very real for all of us. And I think for most people, they know somebody in that situation. The challenge has always been teachers unions are very good at uh, running campaigns and making these things happen, making loud noises and Labour MPs want to be supporting their friends in the unions. But you can't forget the priority is the purpose of education is not to be a good employer, but to be a provider of an the most important service that we can give if you're a social democrat, which is handing on a better society to the next generation with the knowledge uh, to go and get the work and the creativity to make the country we want to build. So I think that is there. I think with Kate Green and Wes Streeting leading that education team, 
the front bench are in the right place on that. And currently with where we are, and you saw this with Blair talking on the Sophie Ridge programme at the weekend, they're actually not different strategies. If we want to get our schools back, which we must do, whether it's to support the parents, ensure the kids and make sure that teachers have, uh, you know, the kind of work that they want to do and the dignity at work they need to do, actually vaccinating uh, uh, teachers is a relatively easy job, takes away huge amounts of the anxiety in the system. It, I am thankfully not a worrier, but lots of my friends are, and I cannot imagine being a worrier and having to go in with all the worries of being a teacher and then worrying about the fact that you've got three, 30 kids who don't know, couldn't possibly social distance if they tried, being around you constantly. And even when schools are closed, they're still open for the children of the workers that are at the front line are most likely to be exposed from COVID. So I think either way, schools open or closed, uh, whatever Labour's position is, vaccinating teachers is, is the best way out of where we've got now to ensure that we take a massive amount of strain of public servants who are trying to do the right thing so you can have the system so kids can't be held back and that uh, parents can't be stopped from going to work and providing for their families uh, in all the normal ways. I think we're getting to a point now where we might have to consider repeating the year uh, because it, kids have lost out on so much and, they, uh, and, and if, if we don't, we're just going to see the most uh, egregious wealth inequalities uh, come out of our education system when it should be trying to uh, diminish those, uh, those, those inequalities. Um, but we'll see, and cleverer people than me will work out whether that ends up being the thing we need to do and whether it's the thing we can afford to do and it, it becomes the thing that we... I think the situation is really grim in education. Parents desperately need the help. The kids cannot be forgotten. Uh, but one of the easiest things they could do is once they've done the four priority groups, get teachers in. And, you know, Blair, who's been working these things, these things through, many of them with Matt Hancock, we're led to believe, um, says you could do it over half term. That's what Keir Starmer called for. Doesn't seem to me to be particularly unreasonable. And, you know, I don't think those things are in quite the contradiction that sometimes they're posed as whether it's in the culture war or some, some of the anti-union press or whatever it might be, you're ultimately, your point is ultimately right when it comes to it. When we have a policy for election day, it's got to be a policy for pupils and parents, not for teachers. But let's move on to a, a bit more of a fun element of uh, the conversation um, and get you to select your ideal leadership team. Uh, and I'm not talking about a leadership team that can take us out of the COVID crisis. I'm just talking about, you know, a group of people who you would be comfortable running uh, the country. Um, and, you know, you've obviously worked with some great politicians. You've um, been part of uh, campaigns right across the world, not just in the UK. You're uh, clearly uh, somebody who interests themselves in American politics as well. So you don't necessarily have to limit yourself to British politicians, um, but of those people that you've sort of watched or worked alongside, who would it be around your cabinet table? What's the Richard Angel cabinet table looking like, mate, in terms of who you'd have there? You can have Kamala Harris as the uh, <laughs> Prime Minister, get Julia Gillard in to run the Treasury, Hillary Clinton as Foreign Secretary. We could have lots of fun with this. The um, uh, mainly great women. I mean, I, I very much support Keir Starmer and his leadership of the party, and I think he will make a great Prime Minister one day. Uh, you know, he has a, a remarkable uh, experience of public service, what he did at the CPS when he was the uh, uh, running the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, I, think, I think means he is there. And quite frankly, if he were running this COVID uh, crisis, I would, I would not have any reservations. I think he is leadership ready and... Uh, able to take the kind of uh, the seat of of government and steer our nation uh, in that way. Um, I think it's bizarre that Rachel Reeves isn't more prominent uh, on the front bench and in an economic um, brief. And I, I very much think that she's um, incredibly impressive uh, to uh, to see and uh, and to see make happen. Um, I'm a big supporter of Liz Kendall's, and I think that um, again, it's it's surprising that she isn't. Uh, um, up there uh, on the front bench showing the public that they're our priority, uh, not, the, not some of the internal issues um, in the party. Uh, my local MP is Wes Streeting, and I, I know he's very much enjoying his education uh, brief, so uh, I, I'd probably be remiss to not mention him and his boss, uh, Kate Green, who I do think in education um, are, are, are doing a very good job. 
I'm just look, looking across the kind of uh, chamber at, at people who, from other parties, I think have really stepped up. He's not no longer in Parliament. I think he lost his seat, but his name escapes me. The, the Lib Dem MP, Norman, oh, what's his name? I can't remember his name. It'll come back to me in a second. But there, uh, there are clearly some good people in other parties uh, as well. And if only I can remember his uh, name, he represented one of the Norfolk seats, was a remarkable MP and would be a, is a great public servant. And I think there's always been a kind of social democrat that I would really uh, strike a uh, accord with. There are clearly some uh, conservatives that are uh, both really progressive um, the, uh, and, and, and brilliant at making uh, things happen and making the country uh, a, a better place. And I, I think, you know, George Osborne is the most remarkable politician, uh, I think, since Blair. Obviously, austerity has been a disaster uh, for the country. And his rhetoric on austerity was as bad as the reality of it because it lost such confidence in the markets, but his vision to de, uh, uh, to uh, devolve uh, the English power base and empower there to be mayors like Andy Burnham and Dan Jarvis um, across the country um, was a really important insight and is something that I think he will be remembered for and does deserve um, the requisite praise uh, 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 to, to have happened, um, for, for all that to have happened on his watch and, and from his you know, that ran against the uh, run against the grain. Uh, Ken Clark has always been somebody that has been, um, I think, really interesting um, uh, to me, uh, and broadly has done the right thing by the country, whether it went down well with his party or not. And he lost many a leadership election on on saying to his party what he thought was best for the country, not just best for the activists. And I, wanting somebody in my party to do the same, I can't help but respect seeing that in the other team uh, occasionally. So. Uh, they'd be some of the people I'd put up front. Not a bad lineup, I have to say. Was it Norman Lamb? Norman Lamb, what a wonderful man. Yes, Norman Lamb is one of the most. I, I, we didn't do very many cross party events either, Progress, but we did do an event with him, partly because I think he had done some stuff with Caroline Flint and, uh, and Liz Kendall on the need for a cross party royal commission on social care. And we did an event with him and one of the, I think I, I, got, I was lucky enough to chair it and my reflections from working with him is he had a set of social democratic things that he just wanted to do and he wasn't caught up in the angst of telling everyone what he believed all the time. He was like, you know, I am a social democrat, this is what I believe, therefore, and more of the conversation was therefore we should and had a ream of measures, whereas many of the times you speak to Labour Party people, they're much more focused on whether where you're coming from is right rather than what you say is the right thing to do for the country and I, I personally just maybe motivation is really important I found it a very poor judge of other people's motivations personally uh, so I try and keep clear of it the I try and judge people on what they do and whether they're minded to do things and the people who are most minded to do things are the people who most impress me. Uh, and, you know, given the fact that this is your team, you're picking it, what job would you give yourself, Richard? What would be your dream job in government? Oh, uh, th this is where I've got to move my MP aside. Uh, education is my passion. Um, and, you know, I really do think it is whatever way you come from as politics, whether it's uh, as a social democrat as I am, whether you're an avid socialist or whether you're a conservative, I think giving every child the best education um, is the most innate and most important thing that government can do. And whether you're doing it to uh, uh, for a social mobility to level up or to, uh, or a kind of meritocratic uh, right-wing argument, it actually ends up in the same place. You know, you don't judge whether you've got a good education system or whether you've put in equal input to everybody in the system, but whether you've got broadly equal outcomes and you've used that education system to uh, reduce inequalities that people are born with or inherit from their postcode. I mean, you know, the kind of racial disposition that we have and inequalities that too many communities are held back by. Education should be the bit that shakes it all up, breaks it and takes people out meeting their potential. And I'd love to do that uh, as the education secretary. That's the only job I would ever like, I think, in, in public life directly is, is to help frame an education system that gives every child the best chance, that sees them look to their potential and see how they can reach it and hold their hand through that process and potentially give them a second chance if they didn't get it right the first time because we all know of people that that just didn't make that choice at the first time 
and for whatever reason seem to be written off and it's the biggest waste of potential um, that we have in our society. It leads to many of the big challenges that we still have to face, whether it's in our job market, our healthcare or whatever. And so ultimately, I think you can do more as a good education secretary in all areas of public policy than you probably can in any other government department. Okay. Uh, that was going to be my final question, but actually I'm just running through the names that you've thrown at us there in terms of your ideal cabinet. And you've gone for an eclectic group of people, cross-party, of course. Uh, and I just... We didn't get into the conversation, did we, about, you know, the defections that took place from the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. And I just wonder what your view was, uh, is, sorry, of, of 21st century politics in the UK uh, and whether we will, um, through this century, maintain the two-party system. Uh, because, you know, a number of people have tried to break that over the past 50 years. You know, we saw the SDP... Uh, we've seen some moves from the right, you know, UKIP, Brexit Party, so on and so forth. And then we saw uh, Change UK uh, come about a couple of years ago. And yet, you know, our tradition still very much around the two-party system, Labour, Conservative. Uh, and, you know, I think, unfortunately, over the past decade or so, um, they have drifted apart. So that thing that we used to call consensus politics um no longer exists or certainly not to the extent it did um but do you think the two-party system is the way we're going to continue through the 21st century mate i ultimately do um i flirted with the idea that it was all going to be you know roughed up and and change around for a while but uh, the evidence suggests that's broadly not true partly why you have the electoral system that you've got it means that People are not going to um, ever really reward those who leave a party um, because in the nature of doing it is a failure, right? I mean, ultimately, Chucker and Chris Leslie and the likes were saying, we can't change the Labour Party, so we're going to try and provide you with something different. Now, you can understand why Luciana Berger, because of the anti-Semitism that she'd been subjected to, got to that point and could see no future. And I personally you know, feel very torn about... I was spiritually with her because I wanted to show solidarity meaningfully for the experience she had gone through but I never could be convinced that it would work and therefore didn't uh, believe it was the right course of action and that was the only reason why I didn't um, go with her and I I don't regret not going but I do regret that she was on her own um, in that, uh, that, that moment um, and equally those who defected the Anna Soubrys and whatever you know, they were equally saying to the public, we have failed to make our party what we think it should be. So I think launching something uh, as a kind of failure is, is by definition not going to lead to um, success. The electoral system is the way it is. But broadly, we talk about people becoming less partisan uh, in their politics, and there's lots of evidence to show that's true. I think what's really happened is an inversion. So people have gone from being Labour voters to being anti-Tory voters. They've gone from being Conservative voters to being anti-left, anti-Labour voters. And I think people are much more motivated at election time in what they're voting against than what they're voting for. Now, I personally regret that because it means that poor governments get off scot-free and that people are able to turn a blind eye to real injustice on their own side, things they should be sorting out before election day. Uh, when they get there, but that's what it is. So I think that will persist because of it, and it therefore is incumbent on good people uh, to make the political party that reflects their political traditions the best it can be. And, you know, we've talked about it being my team and uh, and all the things that we have, the kind of blind loyalty to our football teams that my dad wished I had for his very poor family team of Coventry City Football Club. Um, we've been to many a game, they've rarely won any of them, but apparently we're supposed to be loyal regardless. And uh, But I feel that about uh, the Labour Party in lots of ways. But in the past, that has meant I turned a blind eye when it failed. And I think that was wrong. And I hope under Jeremy Corbyn, I stepped up and pointed out where the party was wrong and did real actions to try and change that. But I think too few people did. And uh, that, that's the reality of the thing. But uh, it got through that period. It is clearly a better place now. Um, and, and people who did and didn't do different things um, will be the inheritors of that and will try and make that a better place. And I think 
I think I think I think that's the way British politics will go. So you can moan about it from the sidelines all you want, or you get involved and make the you know make something of the country that you've got. We don't start with a blank sheet of paper. And you know, one of my very many frustrations about the Labour Party is it keeps writing manifestos to win the election in Sweden. We don't live in Sweden. Like you've got to, you know, my, my Labour colleagues got to accept we live in a centre-right country where people are convinced to vote for social democrats if they can use a calculator. You know, they will they will fund more public services, but in a iterative way, understanding that when you increase the taxes, what you're spending on public services is less, not more. And you're not going to come back in three months time saying all that lovely stuff you got free on the NHS has now got to be paid for again. So another tax. And it's that kind of reassurance you need to give people in a country like ours um, about how if you're going to expand public services, rebuild places, help give them economic purpose with the support of the public economy to help the private economy. They need the reassurance that when you're spending their money, you're doing it as if you're spending your own money. And Labour too often completely fails on that point. I think Keir Starmer has started in the right direction uh, on that. And if he continues to press that with his Labour colleagues, Labour will have a chance at the next election. Um, the way the Tories have spent the money this time will upset people in all different directions and please people in different directions. But it's going to be an election unlike any other, I think. But you've got to remember those fundamentals. Richard Angel, thanks for having a frank conversation in the downtown den. It's been an absolute pleasure. Candid, clear, concise, and absolutely fascinating as always. Uh, great to see you. And hopefully, Richard, we can get you to some live downtown events later in the year. If only we could do an event where we could see people and have little canapes and stuff. Remember, <laughs> we used to complain. Oh, rubbish little food little canopies everything's beige i can't wait to be an event <laughs> with, with, a, with a dirty glass with somebody with yesterday's lipstick on it and a little canopy oh this is a halcyon days can't Thank wait for it not, not too long thanks very much Cheers, buddy. i'll see you again very soon thank you